I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Back in September 1970, 12-year-old Martha Hodes and her 13-year-old sister were flying back home to New York from Israel when the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine hijacked their plane. Two other jets were hijacked by the same armed group, and all three were forced to land in the Jordanian desert, where the passengers and crew were held not knowing their fate. It was a terrifying international incident, and Hode spent the last 50 years trying to suppress her fears, even the facts about what she had endured. She's a historian and decided to investigate why she was determined not to remember what had happened so many years ago. Today, and the connection how trauma can rewrite our memories. Martha Hodes joins us here in our Philadelphia studios to discuss her new book. It's titled My Hijacking, A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. Martha Hodes, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. Wonderful to have you here. I was really fascinated by this book on so many different levels. But what was it like to be a historian of your own life? Well, it was certainly a new experience for me. This is my fourth book. I've written three other books. I am a historian of the 19th century United States. I had always written about other people's lives and about people who were no longer alive. So not only this time was I writing about myself, but some of the other people I was writing about were still alive, and that was a new experience for me. It was a matter of bringing my skills as a historian to my own memories and to my own life. And that was uh, a challenge in many ways, but also very interesting and Hmm. important to me. I mean, it seemed you had a lot at stake because you had spent so many decades not remembering something. And here you are, you know, determined to dredge up at least some of these old memories. Yeah, it had been almost 50 years. Um, After I finished my previous book, which was a work of 19th century history, I I had some time. I always take a fair amount of time between books. And I decided just for myself that I would do some research. It had been, as I said, about a half century. It felt unresolved. It was something my family didn't talk about. And so I began to do a little bit of research. And then one day I was talking with my agent, And she was asking me what my next book would be. And I wasn't thinking that I was going to write a book about the hijacking, but I had been doing this research. I had gone to the TWA archives, and I had found some papers of another hostage. And so I was just telling her about it. And then something kind of remarkable happened, which is (laughs) her dog, who was (laughs) snoozing at her feet, walked over to my chair, put his paws on my knees, and looked up into my face. And I said to my agent, What's going on? And she said, oh, Farley can tell when someone's in distress. Well, well, Marty, I didn't know I was in distress by just telling my agent about this book. And that was a clue, a very important clue for me. Dogs know everything. Don't they? I'm, I'm determined. There's some really important driving questions that you strive to answer in this book having to do with what happened to you. But I think these are questions we can all think about. You say, why did I remember so little? Why did I feel like I wasn't even there? Why do I have no memory of being afraid? What could remembering tell me? And what happened if I allowed myself to remember? And I think these are questions we can all relate to about our own memories, not these traumatic memories that you have. That's right. So, you know, people might see the book and think, oh, you know, I haven't had an experience that traumatic. But that's not that's not what's central in a way to the book. 
what's central for me and what was central about writing the book was was exactly that, how we forget and try to remember things that happened to us as children. And I use the word traumatic probably less in a, in a clinical sense and right. more in an informal sense. Um, people have had all kinds of experiences that were disturbing and unsettling. And so part of what the book was about for me is things that happen to us as children that families don't want to talk about. And also things that happen to us as children that we don't understand the significance of. And by that, I mean for ourselves and also politically. And then when we aren't children anymore, when we're grownups, we can return to these events. In my case, I returned to this event as a historian, as we discussed a moment ago. But there are many ways to return to these events. And that was really important for me, thinking of myself both as who I am now, but also in a way as a historical actor in the past, and then connecting the grown-up historian to that 12-year-old girl in the well, desert. And what's so interesting is this this was an international incident. I mean, this was something I remember in 1970 hearing about uh, the hijacking of these planes and holding them in, Jor- in Jordan. So it's while it's personal, as you say, it's also political. You also write, and, and there are lots of sentences that reveal some things about you. You say, perhaps this is as a little girl, you were good at banishing disagreeable feelings. Yes. So I think that's true of many children. In my case, you know, my sister and I were children of divorce. And, you know, children have to survive. And children want their parents to survive. And so for me, what I realized through writing this book and also in conversation with my sister, who's a year and a half older than I am. Catherine. I was 12. She was 13, Catherine. And she was incredibly supportive of this whole enterprise, as were my parents and my friends and fellow hostages. Um, I realized that it was important to me to craft a story of this event that I could live with and that I felt my parents could live with because, you know, there's a sense among children in many cases, maybe especially children of divorce, that we don't want to upset our parents. My sister, and I write about this in the book, was far more willing to face the fear and the trauma of the event. When we got home, my father and I, as I put it in the book, we colluded to keep the story a happier one than it probably was. Now, there were some good times on the plane. People were kind. The commandos, our captors were kind to us. The other hostages were kind. Um, But of course, it was also very frightening. And so that series of questions you asked just now, which run throughout the book, in a way, the book was a journey about trying to see if I could find those emotions. And it's not, uh, I can leave this as a gift to the reader, or we can talk about it more if you'd like, but um, it was a journey about discovering why I could or could not find those emotions inside me. Right. And and fear being obviously the most driving emotion. I do want to have you read a section from the book, but I have a quick question before that. You wanted to protect your father, and you say this several times, that there was something about protecting him from the fear that you must have felt, um, worry what would happen if you didn't make it, what would your father do did you feel you felt protective of your dad? I did. I felt very protective of him. Um, he, my father was a was a man a little bit ahead of his time. He, um, he was a ballet dancer. He was he was a modern dancer. A modern he was dancer. A Martha Graham yeah. dancer. As was my mother. And my father was 
he identified himself as a father, as a parent. It was the most important thing in his life. And he was very clear about that, more important than his quite illustrious career. And there was a sense that if we didn't survive, what would he do? Huh. And I think many children on the plane, there were other unaccompanied children, felt that as well, absolutely. Personally, I can just say, I can only speak for myself, both of us felt that. And, you know, when we were released and flew home. You and your sister. My sister yeah. and I, of course, we ran into my father's arms. And then the story my father always tells is my sister says, oh, dad, we were so worried about you. And my father held on to those words because to him it meant it wasn't so bad if they were worried about me. And he told that story, Marty, over and over again whenever I would bring up the hijacking. It was his script. It was his way of reassuring himself. And I knew that as a child that it was very important to him right. that we were that we to know somehow that we didn't suffer, and so I perpetuated that idea um, for a long time. Well, I'd love to have you read a section from the book. You kept a diary as a child, a diary you called Claire. I should say to our listeners that you and Anne Frank share a birthday, so she, of course, had her very famous diary, um, and this is. Um, uh, frankly, the on September 7th. Yes. So um, 1970, I should say. Yes. And as just as Anne Frank named her diary Kitty, I chose to name my diary and I chose the name Claire. And so here's what I write. This is the morning we wake up on the plane after having landed in the desert the night before. Dear Claire, yes, I'm still sitting on the plane. It happened yesterday on the way from Frankfurt to New York. I was chatting with Catherine. Suddenly, someone was running down the aisle, shouting something I couldn't understand. The people's faces turned frightened, and in a while, the hostesses told us that there were some people talking to the captain. It was a hijack. We didn't know where we were going to. Then a voice came over the speaker. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am the new pilot who has taken command of your TWA flight. I began praying and praying. Keep calm, she continued with her accent. Please cooperate and put your hands behind your head. We all obeyed, and I could see the plane turning. The hostesses comforted a crying Catherine and calmed everyone. Finally, I slept. After a long time, we landed in Jordan in the vast desert. We slept through the night. About six people, plus me and C, meaning Catherine, were transferred to the first-class section. I don't know why. It was good because the seats were wider. It might take two or three days, but I continue to pray. I mean, very matter of fact, right? Uh, a hijacking exclamation point. Exclamation point. Yes, and actually, I, I should tell your listeners, our listeners, where I write the sentence, the hostesses comforted a crying Catherine and calmed everyone. Soon after I wrote that, I went back and crossed out the words, a crying Catherine. In other words, my sister was in tears. It was very hard for me to face the fact that my sister, who was my protector, was afraid. And I crossed it out pretty pretty intensely with black magic marker, but I was able to make out the words. And I crossed it out to read the, the hostesses, which is what, of course, we called flight attendants in those yeah. days. The, hostess, the hostesses comforted and calmed everyone. So I tried to erase from my record that my sister was afraid because it was more than I could bear. Well, as you said, you're, you felt of your, your older sister, slightly older, but nonetheless as your protector. And it seemed even as you got back uh, after the hijacking, you would argue with her about whether you were afraid or not. Was she afraid? Was she crying? Were you... You know, were you upset that this was this ongoing argument that you had with your sister about how 
how you were faring during this hijack. Exactly. And she was the one who was willing to face our fears. And what what the reader will learn early in the book, and then I talk about it again later, is um, I found a tape of an interview that my sister and I had given less than a week after our return. And it was given to an older cousin of ours who was a freelance journalist and was writing for an alternative Boston Weekly. And on that tape, not a, all of which appeared in the in the Boston Phoenix, I insist that I wasn't afraid. And my sister says, yes, you were. And I say, no, I wasn't. And we go back and forth. And the tape was an incredible document for me as a historian. It was really a document about my sister and me as historical actors in the past. And it was very, very illuminating to listen to myself. And my father was in the room when we were being interviewed to listen to myself denying that fear. And we're almost having a break here. Did you sound afraid? I sounded like I was trying to be in control. And I spoke very softly when I said that I wasn't afraid. Interesting. That is Martha Hodes, our guest today on Radio Times. We're talking about her new book. It's called My Hijacking, A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. She and her sister and uh, uh, um, passengers on a TWA flight were hijacked. This was back in September 1970. We're talking about uh, remembering and forgetting. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Just to recap here, Martha Hodes, our guest, was 12 years old when the plane that she was traveling in was hijacked. This was September 1970. She and her sister and uh, other passengers were held for nearly a week in the desert in Jordan. Uh, The uh, captors were armed. The airplane was actually uh, uh, wired for uh, with dynamite. So clearly a terrifying experience. We're talking about her new book, My Hijack. Jacking, a personal history of forgetting and remembering. And it's about uh, the decades that she really spent both m- not remembering, but also minimizing what had happened uh, in that uh, September of 1970. Let me ask you, though, because I don't think any of us want to remember being afraid. I mean, we're afraid of being afraid. And even thinking about fear can be a, a f- a frightening experience. So on the one hand, I understand why someone, you, would not want to remember that because it's upsetting. But at the same time, this was such a huge thing that had happened to you in your life. Right. You know, you had uh, before, earlier in the in the program, Marty, you had listed those questions. And one of them was, why did I remember so little? You know, partly the passage of time, partly I was a child, Partly memory erases trauma, which is what you were just talking about. All of those things were true. And yet, to me, I said this earlier, and I can elaborate a little bit, it it felt unresolved. And I had spent my professional career decades as a historian writing books about other people's adversity, fears, loss, grief. It felt like time to write my own, although it was not an easy enterprise. No, I can't imagine. It was not easy to reconstruct and learn about everything that had happened to us. But in the end, I was very glad 
even while I was writing it, I was very glad that I was taking this journey. It's not something everyone will be able to do or should be able to do about the trauma in their lives, but if it's something you can do, it could be a very positive experience. Yeah. You had been given that summer uh, The Little Prince, one of my favorite books ever written. Uh, you read it several times as as a 12-year-old. And you quote quite liberally from The Little Prince in this book as well. And, and to people who haven't read the book, the three people probably in the world, you know, this is an aviator who crashes his plane It's in the, in the desert where he meets this little prince. Why did that book matter so much to you and matter even today? Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for asking that. You know, when I read my diary over, so I had this diary. I had been an inveterate diary keeper since I was about 10. And I had, I knew I had the diary I kept all summer and kept on the plane. And I thought, you know, this will be my trusted source. Historians love sources closest to the time and place under investigation. The diary turned out, and this connects to The Little Prince, turned out to have many omissions in it. And so... One thing I found in the diary was that I had, my Israeli stepfather had given me The Little Prince that summer, and I wrote in my diary, it is fantastic. (laughs) He read it to us. I read it to myself. I almost had it memorized. And then another hostage who I contacted and met with, who was very kind to us on the plane, she was a 19-year-old woman who, who took care of many of the unaccompanied children. Lo and behold, in her account that she had written when she got home, which she gave to me, She wrote that she and my sister and I one night sat looking out at the stars in the desert and talked about the little prince. So I knew it was really important. Now, here's the thing about all the omissions in my diary. There were so many parts of the little prince that spoke to my experience in ways that were not directly related to the aviator's experience. But I'll just give a couple of examples, if that's okay. When my sister and I learned about the plight of Palestinian refugees, something we didn't know anything about, I quote a line, and I put these lines in parentheses in the text, where I write, and once again, said the aviator in The Little Prince, without understanding why, I had a queer sense of sorrow. Mm. Perfect description Mm -hmm. of how I felt learning this new history. And then um, when I write about our arrival at Kennedy Airport, I talked to my stepmother about this, and her memory was that we weren't crying when we saw my father. And her words were, no crying, no tears, ready to go. And then I quote a line from Little Prince, nothing about him, said the aviator, gave any suggestion of a child lost in the middle of the desert. Mm. And here's where I connect it to the omissions in my diary. I realized after I wrote the book that quoting the Little Prince was a way to reflect my inability to express feelings in my own words. And that was very important to me. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I loved sort of coming across the, the quotations that you have in the book, a ref- reference to the, to the Little Prince. Well, let's go back to those six days in the desert. And, and you are able, from your own memory, but also you interviewed a lot of the, the hostages and other people that were associated with this incident to find out more about what that was like. This was the hot desert. It was September, so it had to have been boiling hot. You're in a plane for six days, running out of food, running out of water, running out of toilet um, abilities. (laughs) Help us understand what was going on for those six days. Yeah, what's so fascinating, just to connect it to our conversation about memory, is that I had no memory of, of 
what I learned to be the conditions on the plane. So very hot during the day, um, quite cold in the desert at night, very cold. Running out of food, our captors, the commandos, shared all the food they had with their hostages. Um, They brought a water truck out to the desert. Obviously, thirst was very important. I didn't remember feeling hot, cold, hungry, thirsty. Um, Toilets on an airplane don't flush without electricity. The sanitation was horrendous. Um, The The smell. The smell, which I don't remember, was horrific. The crew, the passengers, and the commandos all chipped in to help clean. We all had to take our turn plunging the toilet. I don't remember that, but we did talk about it on this interview. So obviously my sister and I took our turn. It was hard to remember what we did for all that time. And when I asked people, their answer was nothing. What did we do? Nothing. What did we do all day? Nothing. But in fact, when I read more deeply, we talked, we played cards. You know, people had decks of cards. We played guessing games. People had birthdays. We celebrated birthdays. Of course, people prayed. We sang songs. One of my favorite memories was um, Peter, Paul, and Mary's Living on a Jet Plane, which we sang as Living Living on on a a Jet Plane, plane, which was funny then. And we laughed and laughed when we told the story when we got home, but struck me as quite a bit sadder because we sang the next line, don't know when I'll be back again. And some people recalled it as don't know if I'll be back again. Um, We also sang Yellow Submarine as we all live on a white TWA. (laughs) We sang 500 miles from my home as 100 hours in these clothes. Uh, So, you know. um, Gallows humor, right? Gallows humor, absolutely. Um, Conversation among hostages and conversations between captors and captives as well. In in fact, you say, and and other people that um, that were on this airplane also said that the it's interesting, you call them commandos and not terrorists, but nonetheless, that, that people were largely treated very well. Yeah, so I call, partly I call them commandos because that was, that was, the word terrorism has a history, and I'm a historian, and commandos was the word that mainstream papers used at the time. The definition of terrorism was shifting in around 1970, and it's a very loaded term. Um, and so... I'm sorry, what was the last question, Marty? Well, just that, um, uh, (laughs) um, why you called them terrorists, why you didn't call them terrorists. Ah, Oh, you said, yes, that's right. You said that they were, they largely treated us well. Largely treated well. And so um, as children, they did treat us well. Um, And they were, I should say, they were nice to us. And so, you know, there was- jump roped with some of them. They let us out of the plane several times for air and exercise. The commandos jumped rope with the children. They gave children piggyback rides. Um, You know, the the commandos were part of a Marxist-Leninist group of revolutionaries. Um, They were well, their leadership was well-educated. They spoke many languages. And all that is to say, one of the one of the commandos explained to the children when we went outside one day the workings of why we saw a mirage of the water on the on the um, mm. horizon. He explained that to us scientifically. Um, there was one day when my sister was crying; she was afraid, and she was sitting in her seat crying. And one of the commandos stopped at our row, and he said to her, "Don't cry. We have children too." And that was meaningful to us. My sister remembered that as feeling that he was fatherly because he said, "We have children too," and that was important to us. Worried about our own father. Um, oh, another time, 
he's one of the commandos, a different one, had spied a heart that my sister had drawn on the back of her notebook with the name of a boy she liked that summer. And he looked at her and he said, romantic. You know, so they were kind to us. One of the things I learned in my research was that other hostages had much more frightening experiences. Right, adults. And at one point, I mean, these people were armed, so we should say it's not like um, it was some kind of a picnic. These people were armed. At one point, they're asking, you know, who's Jewish, who's Israeli. So clearly there was there was some pretty yes, scary I, politics. Yes, here. I do need to say you're absolutely right um, that there was one moment where we were questioned about our religion. It's a complicated issue. The Popular Front was very clear, and I I did read a lot of their documents, um, interviews with them, um, their literature, their own uh, personal accounts of all of this as well. I wanted to also read that part of the experience. Um, Politically, they made a distinction between Jews and Zionists. They're asking the hostages their religion was a delicate and troublesome issue. Um, It felt to people as if they were being singled out as Jews. From the point of view of the Popular Front, they were trying to determine people's connections to Israel in terms of which hostages to hold longer. It was it was a, a difficult um, a kind of a conversation. Um, and yet after that night, they never did make that distinction again. And it is not true, although widely reported untrue, that they separated Jews from non-Jews. Um, There were both Jews and non-Jews on the plane, and even the hostages held two weeks longer. About two-thirds of them were not Jewish. Which is interesting. And there was a fair amount of press coverage, which you write about. And it's interesting to look back, you know, what people got wrong, what they got right, uh, including the thing that you just said about not separating. Yeah, it was fascinating to read the press coverage and to um, to see the persistence of these myths that, you know, all of the non-Jews were released from the plane and all of the Jews were kept. That's absolutely not true. I do say that, you know, the the night that the commandos asked us that question was a very confusing and frightening night. And so it's understandable that people um, crafted the story that way. But it was very important to me to make clear that that wasn't what happened. And even complicating things further, um, the Red Cross gave tranquilizers, gave out, including to you and your sister, um, I guess to help people stay calm and, and not get upset. Yes. So there were two doctors on the plane. One was the Palestinian Red Crescent doctor who the hostages I spoke to unanimously remembered as a very, very kind man. And he was. And he had pills. And then the International Red Cross sent a doctor and he had pills. This was 1970. This was like the great age of Valium, you know, when everybody was just popping pills. And they gave out tranquilizers to men, women, and children. And I have no memory of this, but we did say on this taped interview that I listened to that we were clearly falling asleep with tranquilizers at night. And I think that's one of the reasons that we didn't know about the interrogations that were going on in the first class lounge. We were sitting at the front of coach class quite near that, but we were knocked out at night. And this is where um, this is where the unpleasant experiences some hostages had that I didn't know anything about, where they were being questioned at the front of the plane. But we never saw or heard a thing probably because hmm. of these tranquilizers. And as I say in the book, it's a miracle I remembered anything 
because of these tranquilizers. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. Uh, Talking today on The Connection, our guest is Martha Hodes. She is a historian. In fact, she's a professor of history at New York University, and she's got a new book we've been talking about. It's called My Hijacking, A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. And you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY. I cannot imagine being a parent and having a child or children being held by, by commandos or terrorists, however you want to describe it, in a country feeling completely helpless. You know, you can make phone calls, you can write op ads, but you cannot go and rescue your children. So you have your mom in Israel, you've got your dad in New York, you've got your stepmom in New York. I guess you have your stepfather in Israel as well. How did they deal with this? Right. So, of course, this was the age before cell phones, so there was no contact between hostages and their loved ones, none at all. We didn't know what people knew about the planes, and they didn't know what was going on except for what the reporters had to say. My father... um, You know, it was so fascinating talking to my parents about their experiences. My father, I alluded to this before, he had a series of stories he would tell over and over again. These were his scripts. One of them was, I always knew you were coming home. Right. When I spoke to my stepmother, she had a different memory. She remembered that my father thought that we might not come home. That was a very important memory to me. She was much more candid, much more honest. My father... Just as I did in my diary, Marty, my father crafted the stories that he could live with. My mother, on the other hand, her memories were incredibly hazy. She could barely remember anything. She remembered getting the phone call from TWA that our plane was being hijacked. But after that, you know, her parents lived in Israel at the time, and she does not even remember one conversation with them about the hijacking. Obviously, that happened. She just doesn't remember. And so what I had to do was research their experiences as if they were historical actors in the past. So what did the newspaper say? What did the New York Times say? What did the Jerusalem Post say? What did the nightly news say? What did their neighbors say? What did the other dancers around my mother in Israel, what did they remember? And that was partly how I reconstructed their experiences. Which raises a whole host of questions about memory. I mean, one can tell from all the people that you interviewed, people have different memories about different aspects of this hijacking. Uh, People remember things that never happened, (laughs) that never even occurred. Yeah, and one of the things, you know, one of the reasons I call the book My Hijacking is exactly for that reason. It's my story only. It is not even my sister's story. What you remembered, what you experienced, and what you remembered depended on where you were sitting, when you were awake, when you were asleep. Were you a child? Were you a grown-up? Were you traveling alone? Were you traveling with someone else? What was your take on Israel-Palestine politics? All of those things mattered. So this is my hijacking. I will say, though, that... um, In one of the reviews of the book, a reviewer gave a really beautiful explanation of the title that I hadn't even thought of, which is, um, when we were released, we flew to the island of Cyprus before we flew to New York. And uh, I read an article in the London Guardian. Uh, This reporter had interviewed my sister and me. I have no memory of this. But the reporter says... This is when you were little. Yeah. The reporter says, um, Martha Hodes, who was 12 years old, a schoolgirl, said she would wanted to write a school composition about the hijacking. Well, I never did that, 
But this reviewer suggested that the title of the book is almost like the title a 12-year-old would give to a school composition, like My Summer Vacation, My Hijacking. And I actually think that's right. I think it's lovely. Not only did I never write that composition, but when given the opportunity by an English teacher to write about a personal experience, I write about this in the book, I chose to write a review of the Beatles movie, Let It Be. And of course, the title of that movie so deeply reflects right. what I wanted to do with the memory of the hijacking. The unconscious is such a, a wild isn't animal, it? isn't it? Yes. We're almost having a break here, but one of the things that you tell your students, why did this person tell this story this way? So it's so interesting to think of your book as a kind of history book of yourself. Exactly. And this experience. But let's uh, let's uh, take a very short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation. Again, talking with uh, Martha Hodes, and she is a historian, a professor of history at New York University. And we've been talking about her fascinating new book. It's called My Hijacking, a personal history of forgetting and remembering. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscoe, talking with historian Martha Hodes. Let me just recap here. In 1970, she and her uh, sister were on an airplane that was hijacked. It was held for six days in the Jordanian Desert. It was terrifying, and yet Hodes buried many of her fears from those decades. For those, for many decades, her new book, *My Hijacking*, is about what it took to reconstruct her memories, such as they are, and how traumatic events can rewrite our past. You were released, and and I guess we should say that no one was killed. That no, is correct. No one was killed. No one was even injured. That's right. Uh, from this hijacking, just to you know, make sure that people understand that. You were released along with your sister and a number of other people taken to, to a hotel in Amman, Jordan. And there's a picture, a photograph in the book. I mean, you're, we can barely make you out. When you see pictures, does that jog your memory? Yeah, that's a great question, Marty, because a lot of what was going on in this book was my dealing with, or I should say in writing the book, was my sense that this had never happened or the sense that I wasn't there. And when I would come upon evidence, when I would find myself in the archives, I found that a kind of illogical irrationality would take hold. So just to give an example, the New York Times printed a list of passengers. And on this list, I think it was the day after the hijacking, my sister and I were rendered in a very strange way. We were rendered as hodes, and then in parentheses, miss, and then under that, hodes, and in parentheses, child. We were rendered that way because we shared a passport. We were children, and I was the child on the passport. I came across that 
obviously we were on the plane, but it, it was almost like my sister was a grown up right. and maybe an unmarried mother and I was her child. It just made no sense to me. And so I was able to, um, I, I should put it this way, I, that piece of evidence did not make me feel definitively like I was there. The picture you mentioned was a still photograph mm-hmm. from a film I came across um, in the National Archives as part of the CIA footage, part of the news footage that was gathered by the CIA. And this was on our release. We were in a van and a reporter stuck his camera right into the van. And you can see clearly my sister and I'm right behind her. She's looking right into the camera. And what was so fascinating to me as someone trying to reconstruct this event, um, it felt to me like I was a historian coming upon a piece of evidence about someone in the past. It didn't feel like there I am. Now, I will leave this for the readers, but in the very end, I do come across mm-hmm. a piece of evidence that does finally put the last piece of the puzzle into place, and I am finally able to say that I was there. Yeah, yeah. You talk about, and you referenced this earlier, that, that your family didn't really want to talk about this. This was both of your parents, really, and, and I guess their parents as well. You say, you know, for some of the hostages, for some of these children, the families did talk about things, maybe obsessively. But in your family, it was mostly silence. Yeah, I mean, I will say that's you're absolutely right. There were some families that did talk about it. But my family was not unusual in the belief that talking about it would only make it worse for the children. That was not uncommon. I was interested to learn that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was not named until 10 years later in 1980. Of course, people wrote about things like shell shock, you know, for, for soldiers, but did not name PTSD. I should be clear, had that been named, my sister and I did not suffer from the long, long lasting effects of what would be called PTSD. We would have been diagnosed with what was called acute stress disorder, which is much more limited. Nonetheless, I was also very interested to find when we were released, one of the news reports put it this way. The reporter wrote, now their nightmare was over, Hmm. as if it was all done. Not true. um, Not true at all. And also at school. My father had gone to our schools and said we were going to be late, but I learned by talking to some of my teachers, they didn't know. They didn't know why you'd be late? Exactly. Um, And what that meant, and I did spend a long time speaking with my best friend, who is still my very, very dear friend, and what that meant was when a teacher called my name from the roster, she had to raise her hand and say, Martha's on one of those hijacked planes, which was very traumatic for her, and there was no counseling for my friends, no intervention. And my friends remembered, because I talked to many of my seventh grade friends, that I didn't want to talk about it. And their impression was, in the words of one of my friends thinking back, um, no harm done, no lasting effect. So I succeeded in giving right. my friends that impression. You, 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 in a sense, sugarcoated what I had did. happened. I did. Um, I also For was, your own, because that's the story you could live with? That is the story that I could tolerate and I could live with. I also was given a letter that I had written to my best friend in Israel in which I said to her, this is the first letter I wrote to her after I got home, and I said, I'll write you a much longer letter when more things have happened, (laughs) by which I mean I go to school, I see my friends. But that was such a clear indication to me of we're not talking about this. It's done. But it's interesting because you say, you know, you did not have PTSD. I mean, obviously, there was it was traumatic and, and there were some after effects. 
you didn't have counseling. Do you think, in hindsight, there should have been some counseling, someone for you to talk to? I do think so. I do. I absolutely do. I think that burying it, although, you know, we we survived, we went on, and some of the hostages did suffer PTSD. We were not among them. Um, But we did have, you know, this acute stress disorder. I felt my bedroom was an airplane for at least a week afterwards. Um, My longest lasting effect was, you know, I, I fly all the time, but but with great trepidation. I do think that the school and parents should have provided some sort of counseling. Um, I, I'm not a psychologist. Right. I can't say what, but I don't think it was right to suppress it and never talk about it. One of the things that you write about, the sort of after effects of the hijacking, and I'm quoting here from you, struggle as grown-ups. I think you and your sister struggling as grown-ups to maintain the intimacy that helped us survive back then. Yeah, um, absolutely. And this is something my sister and I talked about while I was writing the book. As children, only a year and a half apart, we relied on each other in terms of the divorce, the distance from our parents, of course, the hijacking. And yet, um, as siblings, you know, sometimes when you go through trauma that you never talk about, it can also pull you apart in ways because you, you never resolved it. And so and writing, you, you had such different reactions. Yes, to it as such well. different experiences. And in a way, as I said before, I colluded with my father in shutting down these conversations. And my sister fought, f- tried hard to get the family to talk about it. And we wouldn't. And so part of my journey in writing this book, Marty, was empathy for my sister and what she went through. And also empathy for who I was at 12 years old sure. and my inability to absorb everything that had happened, which my sister completely understood, absolutely understood. Do you think your memories then were hijacked? Yes. And that's the other thing about the title that someone else suggested to me, um, hijacking my own memories. Also, my hijacking is about owning the experience. It's so, And I do want to have you read another section from the book, but just a couple of questions beforehand. And you did interview a lot of people. People have different memories. And it was in part to help you reconstruct your memories. So what you remember of what happened, are those your memories or those memories that you have appropriated from other people to call your own? Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to be uh, careful here. So this isn't about recovered memory, which is no, you know, not at all debunked by mental health professionals. It's about researching what happens. So as a historian, what you do is if you have one piece of evidence, you know, that's nice. But if you have 10 pieces of evidence saying something happened, then it's it happened. And so just as an example, everybody I talked to remembered that the um, commando who got on the loudspeaker said, we, were, we are taking you to a friendly country with friendly people. So we know that happened. Everybody remembered those words. Um, so I'm sorry, what was the what was the heart of the question? Whether then? the memory now that you have constructed for yourself is your own or yeah. is it cobbled together yeah. from so other people's memories? Right. That's the hard thing about memory. And I know yeah. this as a historian, that once you identify a memory, it's actually almost impossible to tell if you remember the event or you conjure the event from other people's memories. And I am not able to solve that question. What I do in the very beginning of the book is I write out for the reader all my fragmented memories. And those are the ones that I remembered before I embarked on my research. Those I can be sure of, but nothing after that. Well, let me read you, have you read, I should say, at the bottom of 300 to the top of 301, because I think this relates to what we've been talking about. Sure thing. Maybe the hijacking feels like it happened to someone else because it did. Maybe that 12-year-old girl 
the one who was unable to absorb so much and who worked so hard to forget, was a different person from the grown-up searching to understand what happened and why she remembered so little. Maybe that's why a meticulous reconstruction of my experiences of the hijacking can connect me only faintly to the fear with which Catherine contended, both her own and mine, a yoke of responsibility that made my sister's terror so much more acute. No reconstruction can connect me to my own feelings of fear back then, because I had so fully obliterated those feelings and then so completely disconnected that girl in the desert from the rest of my life. But if I can just add, add um, please. that's not the end of the story in the book. And again, I'll leave this for the reader. But there, there's another emotion that I do connect with in the end. That's part of the journey I went on in writing the book that's very important to me. And not to give it away, but it's sadness. Absolutely right. And that doesn't give anything away to say that. That's correct. And so the reader can read more about that. But it was really sadness, not fear, that was that came to me as the answer to many of those questions about what would have happened if I'd let myself remember and that series of questions you rehearsed at the beginning. You fly, as you mentioned, and you even, I should add, you, you and your sister even flew that following summer, went back to Israel to, to visit your mother. We did. We went back in the summer of 71. It was our last summer because after that we wanted to do things that teenagers wanted to do over the summer. But nobody talked about it. We didn't talk about it. Um, you know, I think my mother wrote us, a, uh, you know, asked us something like, you know, did they treat you especially well? And I wrote her back saying something like, oh, they probably didn't even know we were hijacked. You know, it was all kind of just very superficial. And um, as I say in the book, the the one way my family talked about it was because we were both such skinny little kids and we came back even skinnier. And so, you know, my mother, when she came to see us in New York, she wrote to her parents and saying, said, the children are both look the children both look well and have gained weight and that was like the proxy for they're okay after the hijacking but nothing direct but do you have fear of flying or fear of landing or fear of you know some aspect of flying i do fly i fly a lot because i give talks across the country and all over the world and i do research all over the place but i am well aware that um it does spur a lot of anxiety in me. Um, I you don't, feel it? You feel it? I do feel it. I don't do drugs because I, you know, as a lot of flyers do, because I have this sense of wanting to be aware if something happens. Um, landing is hard for me. I write about this in the book, especially um, when we landed in JFK, all the passengers broke out in applause, of course, after this week in the desert. And that was a joyous moment for me. But ever since then, if passengers applaud upon landing, like if there was air turbulence or a delay, it does set off a, a response in me that's, that's you know, I, I get very agitated about it. So I definitely have those reactions. Mm-hmm. Some of it obviously is about the hijacking. And some of it is also just a child who had to fly across an ocean to see one parent and then the other. And now, I mean, I, now that you've written the book, does, do those fears feel less fearful? You know, I'm not sure they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure they do. I've, I've flown, obviously, there was a pandemic. I've flown some. I'll be flying overseas next week. Um, s- still a certain amount of anxiety. I feel more familiar with it. I feel like I understand it better, and that's helpful. But I would not say that writing the book made that disappear. It's not quite that simple, right? Not quite that simple. 
And let me just quickly uh, tell our listeners that our guest today on The Connection is Martha Hodes. And again, we've been talking about her new book called My Hijacking, A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. And she is a history professor at New York University, has written a number of books, and this one is her most personal. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and you're listening to WHYY in Philadelphia. Let me read just a one or two little sentences uh, from the very end of your book. You say, you say, my story of the hijacking is a story about grown-ups not listening to children because they thought the silence would serve us. And then you end with a quote from The Little Prince, uh, where the aviator, this is the very end of The Little Prince, the aviator uh, says, and no grown-up will ever understand that this is a matter of so much importance. And I think a lot of children, I remember feeling that way about my parents. You know, like you just, you don't understand. Yes, and that's a great um, place to end because, again, the book, you know, is about a, a very traumatic experience that happened to my sister and me. But readers don't have to experience, don't have to have experienced something as dramatic as right. this in order to, I think, I hope, to, to relate to the book and to relate to the kinds of things that I write about, think about, talk about. And that's what I hope that readers will find in the book, um, a way to connect anything in their own childhood, like you just said, that grown-ups didn't quite understand yeah. or that we didn't understand as children how significant something was at the time. We're almost out of time here, but as a historian who relies on I remember interviewing you, a book about mourning Lincoln, you know, people's memories of mourning this president who was assassinated. Does all of this then begin to raise questions about, well, is memory reliable? Yes. Did they remember correctly? Are they Very telling me so. the truth? Very much so. And I'll, I'll just, I can end with this example from when I was researching mourning Lincoln. Lincoln was shot in Ford's theater and people carried the president's body. He was not yet dead across the street to the boarding house. And then when I read reminiscences of Lincoln's assassination as part of my research, so many people remembered carrying Lincoln's body across the street. That number of people would never have fit around his body. But it wasn't that they were lying or fabricating. It's that memory plays tricks. And so the unreliability was familiar to me as a historian. I think what surprised me, Marty, was that my own diary, a document from the exact time and place that I was investigating, wasn't exactly unreliable, but there were so many omissions. And that was really important to me to discover. Yeah, and omissions are so provocative. Like, what, what is that hole? <laughs> to, to omit the fear, to omit the sadness. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, the tough stuff. Well, Martha Holtz, thank you very much for joining us today on The Connection. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to speak with a you, Marty. A pleasure for us as well. And I really enjoyed this book. It was just fascinating on so many different levels. And again, Martha Hodes has been our guest. And uh, her book is called My Hijacking, subtitled A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. And this was about the summer, I should say, end of summer of 1970, when uh, she and her sister were on a plane that was hijacked and held for six days in the Jordanian desert. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler produced the show. I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>